The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Some argue that behaviour is a product of our genes. Others, that upbringing and environment play the primary role in determining who we end up being. So do we carry any moral responsibility for our actions? Many want to have it both ways. We are the outcome of our genes and upbringing, but also responsible for our actions. Joining us to debate whether moral responsibility is an illusion are eminent philosopher and literary critic Galen Strawson, Stoic philosopher Massimo Pigliucci, and neuroscientist Sarah Garfinkel. They all debate the essence of innocence and guilt. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Joanna Kavanagh. Um, so the debate today is about um, free will and determinism, and I'll read you the description. Some argue that behaviour is a product of our genes, Others, the upbringing and environment play the primary role in determining who we are. So do we carry no responsibility for our actions? Courts have on occasion made judgments in this light. In 2006, Bradley Waldrup was acquitted of murder because he was found to have an unusual variant of a warrior gene and to have been abused as a child. Is responsibility for our actions an illusion? And should we, as a result, abandon moral responsibility to build a fairer world? Or is the notion that our actions are determined by our genes, our upbringing, or some combination a dangerous mistake? Perhaps we want to have it both ways. Um, we are the outcome of our genes and upbringing, but also responsible for our actions. But how is this philosophically feasible? So I'll now introduce our speakers. Galen Strawson is a British philosopher and literary critic specialising in the philosophy of mind and metaphysics. Um, he's also been a consultant editor for the TLS, as well as a regular contributor to the Sunday Times, The Independent and The Guardian. Massimo Pellucci, who is a philosophy professor, I should have known that, um, at, at the City College of New York and a former co-host of the Rationally Speaking podcast. And his research includes the philosophy of science and the philosophy of biology. And here in the middle is Sarah Garfinkel, who is a British neuroscientist and professor at the UCL Institute of Cognitive Science, where she leads the group on clinical and effective neuroscience. So I'm going to pose a question to each of our discussants in turn, give them three minutes to set out their stall, and then we'll continue to a debate and then to a Q&A. Um, so I'm going to start with Galen Strawson with the question, 
is personal responsibility and illusion for a mere three minutes? Okay. <clears throat> well, I, I, I'm trying to do two things. First is to explain the sense in which it is. Something called ultimate moral responsibility is impossible. And then I'll try and explain why we can't help believing we have it. <clears throat> Here's a simple argument. So the first has premises. First premise is we do what we do because of the way we are in any given situation. Premise one. Premise two. Uh, so to be ultimately responsible for what we do, we've got to be ultimately responsible for the way we are. Premise three. But we can't be ultimately responsible for the way we are. And you could here feed in stuff about genes and environment, um, but that would certainly be relevant. Um, but there's a more, even deeper, more general reason, which is you couldn't be ultimately responsible for the way we are, because then you'd have to be there already to have a view about how you wanted to be and set yourself up. But then where did that self come from? So what you get is an infinite regress. You could never get far enough back behind yourself to set yourself up in such a way that you could be responsible for how you work. So the conclusion is, ultim this ultimate moral responsibility is not possible. And it's really important that this got nothing to do with determinism, nothing to do with science. It's purely a priori argument. Uh, it wouldn't help, by the way, if you had an immaterial soul, because where did that come from? You didn't, you know, if you got it from somewhere else, you didn't set it up. Okay, quickly, the next bit is, I just have a little story to tell you why you can't help believing you're free. Uh, it's a, I've told it before, but I'm not very imaginative, so I'm just going to tell it again. So you're, it's the evening of a national feast. You've got your nice spread ready for all your guests tomorrow. And you think, I need one more nice cake to make my table perfect. Uh, you go to the shop. There's, the shop is about to close. There's one cake left. You've got 10 pounds. The, the cake costs 10 pounds. You stand on the doorstep of the shop. And there on the doorstep of the shop is a guy collecting money for for Oxfam or famine relief. And at that moment, you know uh, that you are absolutely free to choose. You feel erratic. There is no escaping, as, as Sartre would say, from the fact that you're absolutely free to do this or to do that. And even if you know that if you turned around in five minutes and looked back, you'd say, oh, I was determined to do that. Still, that doesn't change the fact that in that situation, you are radically free. And that's why you can't help believing it. That's it. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'll pose the same question to Mazamo. Please, can you answer, is personal responsibility an illusion? Thank you. Uh, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll be more, more, more precise. I, I don't find actually the concept of ultimate responsibility to be particularly uh, relevant or, or, or useful because then you get into arguments about reductionism. Is this was this conversation you know, determined from the Big Bang? Who cares? Who knows? Uh, it's, it's not the kind of thing that we can really have a meaningful discussion about, I think. Um, I do tend to think, uh, however, that although this, this issue is, in fact, metaphysical and in, in part, that science does have something to say about these kind of things, and particularly the kind of science that I've done, biology. Uh, where we talk a lot about gene environments and, and their in interactions. So uh, we are responsible for what we do in the sense that we make decisions. And those decisions are our decisions. They're not somebody else's decision. So it, you know, it was my decision to, to, to uh, get on a plane and come here uh, to, this week. And it wasn't somebody else. I can't say, oh, no, that was somebody else doing. At the same time, that decision, of course, was the result of a causal web 
that uh, in part a universal cause of web, if you, if you will, that in part includes my own actions. That cause of web includes not only factors that influence me from the outside, for instance, fact that the festival is in London rather than in a place that I don't really particularly care to be, you know, all that sort of stuff. But also internal. Part of that cause of web is internal. It's part of my own decision-making process, which is different from that of other, of other people. So in that sense, my decisions are both the result of factors, a complex set of factors, some of which are internal, some of which are external. Uh, but it is still my decision, ultimately. The buck stops with true. me. It's, oh, you know, it is I who decided that to do certain thing or, or other thing. When it comes to blame and responsibility, I guess we'll talk about it later. But so my, my view is that, yes, in a sense, my decisions are mine, but in another sense, they obviously are the result of cause and effect, and part of that cause and effect is external, part of it is internal. Thank you very much. That's great. And Sarah, finally, can you answer the question as well? Is personal responsibility an illusion? Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so I believe uh, that it is not an illusion. So as a neuroscientist, I'm interested in scanning people's brains, looking at the biological and physiological basis of decision making. And it's, it's complex and it's hard. And to try and isolate biological mechanisms that map onto different processes is incredibly complex. And actually, we are in control of our actions. While there may be genes and certain brain patterns that make some impulses more likely, we also have dedicated areas in our brain, such as the medial prefrontal cortex, which are involved in inhibition, regulation, and help guide us through complex decisions. Thus, we must have personal responsibility for our actions. There are exceptions to this in cases of um, extreme psychosis, um, young children, and there are others as well. But uh, to the most part, our brains are complicated and wonderful, and we do have control over them. Thank you, that's great. So in our first area of debate, I think we're using these sort of vast philosophical precepts like free will. Um, and let's go deeper into this kind of debate just to set everything in context. Um, and I guess also this question of, um, as the discussants have already mentioned, is it paradoxical to believe that our behavior is predetermined while also that we have personal responsibility, as Mazano was talking about. So um, perhaps I can go to you first, because you were making a, a sort of argument for both, weren't you? You were saying, sense, sort of, and yeah. it sort of depends on, again, how we're defining terms. So if you take this first. Yeah, so, so as you just heard, we have specific areas of, the, of our brain that are, in fact, in charge of decision-making, or at least they're involved heavily in decision-making. In a sense, our brains are sophisticated decision-making machines. Uh, biological machines, for sure, complex, uh, for sure, but they are nevertheless, that's what they're for. Uh, that, that, that's a big part of, of what they do. So in, that is the part of the uh, web of cause and effect that I was mentioning a minute ago that is internal to us. And because my particular machinery is different from yours or from yours and so on and so forth, then in a very important sense, those are my choices and not those of somebody else. At the same time, I worry a little bit when we, when we talk about responsibility as opposed to, let's say, ownership, right? So I have no problem owning my own decisions, meaning that I can say those are my decisions. When talking about responsibility, and obviously we're, talking, we're, we're uh, referring to moral responsibility, then the issue gets a little bit more complicated. 
uh, for one thing, I think that moral responsibility is not a particularly useful construct. Uh, because it's often used to just blame people and punish people and do all sorts of things, things that are not very constructive. What we should be doing when people make mistakes, when people make the wrong decision, is to try to fix what was wrong with that decision and to try, if possible, even to fix the machinery that made that decision. In other words, to rehabilitate people um, as opposed to just put them, out, put them away in jail for 30 years and, 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 and uh, lock the, the, the thing and, and throw the key out. So it's more constructive, I think, to not think in terms of moral responsibility uh, as much as in terms of flawed or, or non-flawed decision-making, more or less flawed decision-making. Uh, I don't want to push the analogy too much, but if you have a complex machine that makes decisions for, uh, of a certain kind, let's say a computer, you don't really blame the computer morally when it makes a mistake. You try to fix it. You open it up and you figure out, okay, what is it exactly that's going on? Now, we are a lot more complicated than computers, but we're still biological machines. So when we make decisions, uh, you mentioned a, a minute ago, for instance, if there are uh, uh, brain anomalies, for instance, uh, or genetic anomalies that uh, lead certain people to behave in ways that are clearly out of the norm, well, that means we just have identified a particular cause and we can either fix that cause or take that cause into account when we make decisions about what to do or what not to do. Can I bring Sarah in on, you were mentioning that there are dedicated areas of the brain that guide us. Could you just fill in a little more about how that operates in your research? So they, there is this dynamic relationship between sort of limbic circuitry and emotional-led architecture in the brain. And there are inhibitory regions from the prefrontal cortex which help control those impulses and those inhibitions. And people may differ in those fundamental drives. Bursts of anger may be higher in some people. But there is also these regulatory areas which people can exercise control. And in the vast majority of cases, then that's why people need to be accountable for, for their actions. And I do agree with what you say about um, the role of society. And of course, there are exceptions like psychosis, but I disagree with your pinpointing genetics. Okay. Um, because sure. <laughs> genetics, I mean, there's something like Huntington's disease, which we know can be derived from a single genetic abnormality. But the vast majority of cases, if it was a simple um, mapping of genetics to behavior, we would have cured many diseases. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I want no, sorry, yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah. No, no, I, I, sorry, I did not mean to imply yeah. that there is any simple mapping between yeah. genetics and, and behaviors. Uh, there absolutely isn't. Uh, yeah. So, except for those very occasional cases that you're, you're talking about. But that said, our genetic machinery, meaning our, our full genetic complement, obviously does make, uh, does account for a lot of the causal web of what it means to be you or me or somebody else. Yeah. Uh, you know, we develop, for instance, in a certain way uh, from growing up from, from when we're born on because in part of that genetic machinery and how it interacts with the environment in complex ways. All I wanted to say was that there are causes, but that doesn't mean that those causes are easy to pinpoint or, or, or are, it's even worth trying to pinpoint them. Yeah. 
Can, I, like can I bring in Gabe yeah. on this okay. question of genetics to just explain oh, well, it, again why this it, is so fundamental? For me, it's to just a detail. It's the, my argument just goes as before. I mean, it yeah. doesn't matter how you came to be, how you, how you are, but it's not ultimately up to you how you came to be. But I mean, what, I, mean I of course think now that we we need a fairly robust notion of personal responsibility to run a society. Right. As obvious as a pragmatic. But the question is to both of you really is whether you think that punishment, I mean, you, you tried to sideline it, but you, you can't sideline it that much. Whether you think that punishment, you know, as it were, handed down by a court is ever truly just or fair, or is it just pragmatically Required or it's a good question. I think I that's a brilliant. Think can I, so I want good. that you, you know, you've, you've brilliantly signaled this into the next area. Oh. Just before we do that, though, I wanted to ask you one question. Oh, We're okay. going to retain that excellent question. Okay. Um, but just <laughs> one question about Sartre, because you mentioned Sartre. Yes. And I mean, I guess as you were saying, you know, he has that notion that you make a pact with your future self, and that's fundamental to being human is to say, I will. And then you can make this decision. I mean, how what, what does I, our discussion relate to this sort of Sartrean idea? Yeah, well, the Sartre is good at stories, and his story is set in the Second World War. And the question is, should I stay behind to care for my very sick mother, or should I go off and join the resistance? And his point was really, he says, you're condemned to freedom. That is, you're not free not to choose. That's the sense in which you're condemned to freedom. You have to choose. Um, that's, that's all I had in mind there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's pose your question then. I think we'll do. Should we do that? So the next area. I mean, I sympathise very much with what Massimo said at the beginning about you know you saying I don't think this notion of ultimate moral responsibility is very valuable. But I mean, it does look any anyone who believes in any story about heaven and hell is committed to something like that. Sure. And that's why that is just out. Yeah. That is, I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, I, I agree, I agree. So uh, you asked, uh, you know, under, under what circumstances punishment is, is a good idea. I don't think under any circumstances it is a good idea. Yes, but it's tremendously do. counterintuitive. You know, it's what ridiculous. happens now, I bet somebody's already thought of it. Someone says, what about Hitler? Right, of course. <laughs> and, um, okay, so and since also, you brought Hitler up. To, I mean, with okay. this, so with this question of punishment, do we have to prove scientifically that the person has a gene, for example, that accounts for the crime? I think it's irrelevant. Or are you saying the whole structure? The is whole structure. Yeah. So are... suppose yeah. one guy is brought up in a broken home and poverty and misery and all that. The other person went to Eton and had every possible advantage, and they both finish up doing the same crime. Well, of course, we think that the guy who went to Eton should get a worse, a more punishment. But is that ultimately justifiable? Right. Yeah. Whatever happened to him made him the kind of person who's doing this. Right. I, I don't think it is. So, so I, let, let's go back to Hitler for a minute. I know that. Uh, in, in especially in philosophical discussions, there is now, a, uh, uh, in recent years, somebody has proposed that, that we have a new informal fallacy, the reductio, reductio ad Hitlerium. You know, whatever you bring up Hitler, that's it. That's the end of the discussion. But in fact, I think it's a good point. So my story about Hitler is the following. There is a, a colleague of mine, Owen Flanagan, who is a practicing Buddhist and a philosopher. And early on in his practice, he had the fortune to meet the, the Dalai Lama. And he was really bothered uh, Owen was really bothered by the uh, Buddhist notion that you should never be angry uh, because anger is, is a disruptive, destructive emotion, which I share as, as, you know, I tend to be also a stoic practitioner and the stoics have the same idea. But Owen was like, what do you mean I shouldn't be angry? And so his example was, if I had the classic time machine, shouldn't I go back and, in time and kill Hitler before he does what, he, what he's going to do? And shouldn't I do it because I'm angry at what he was going to do. 
And the Dalai Lama's response was perfect, in my opinion. He said, yes, you should absolutely go back and kill Hitler. In fact, you should do some fanfare, if possible. You should make a big deal out of it. You know, invite people to the party, uh, because it's a big deal. But no, you should not be angry, because Hitler is just one more point in the, in the cosmic uh, sequence, in the cosmic uh, web of cause and effect. He did not ask to be there. He was not ultimately responsible for being there. He's just, you should treat him as a doctor treats a tumor. You don't get angry with tumors, you just excite them. And if it's a big tumor, you make a big deal out of it. You give a party afterwards. But other than that, uh, that, so that's the way I would approach things. Now, if you don't excite this tumor, if you don't want to you know, take it completely out, then you try to reform the tumor. You try to bring it back to a, some kind of normal. So, so should we put away people if they're dangerous, actively dangerous to others? Yes, I think we should. But what we should do in, during that period is try to reform them if possible at all. Uh, that should not be a punishment because the concept of punishment makes no sense to me. And I just want to ask you one question on that. I know Galen wants to come in. Are you saying then that, so in this sequence of cause and effect, is there no original cause in your kind of philosophical? No. No, so there's no first mover in this. There's no originating, because the cause and effect is a kind of cause and effect without an original cause. Uh, the quantum similarity, the, the quantum singularity at the Big Bang, possibly. Um, but the question, but the issue is, doesn't matter, right? Whatever was at the beginning, uh, the first mover uh, of whatever kind, the fact is we find ourselves in a mechanical universe that works in a certain way and we should act accordingly, not, not by going up after fa fantasies like hell and heaven and stuff like that. By the way, we always talk about punishment, but reward is the same thing. We shouldn't be going around rewarding people. I know. Either. No, I know. no rewards. Okay, Galen. No, no, I, I think leave yes. it if you want to get onto the. In terms of Buddhism, though, and I was thinking of the Upanishads, I mean, there's another kind of view, which is that mind is the sort of original reality, and then matter is oh, the sort of concept, wow. you know, created by mind. So, I mean, where would, how would you respond in that sense? And this will be a sort of inverse oh, um, basis. Don't get me going. But it's not gonna, that's not going to change anything in the issue about free will. Um, okay. I think is right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, I don't think it's going to change anything. Yeah. All right. right. Sarah, can I bring you on this again? I was thinking, actually, we were discussing earlier about James and emotions, and I was thinking about that reversal of causality that, you know, the bodily um, experience is sort of generating what we then define as an emotion. That kind of removes, again, the sort of subjective, again, removes the mind in a way yeah. as the originating source of this? Would you like and, to comment on this? Yeah, so my research very much looks at bodily changes, changes in autonomic function in the body and how that guides emotional experience. Our hearts don't beat regularly, they have embedded within them beautiful patterns of acceleration and deacceleration and it's a sensing of these physiological signals from our brain and our mind which gives rise to the experience of emotion. I think that emotion is hugely important to daily life. I was sort of fascinated by what you said about anger. And actually, anger can have many negative consequences, but can be extremely positive. In the case of extreme adversity, then anger states can help give people drive to carry on and be OK. Yeah. And anger gets a bad rap for things it can lead to, but it can be vital for people who are trying to overcome depression and adversity. Um, and actually, it's a much needed emotion at times. Yes. Yeah. Well, so you'd have the, um, you know, the time machine with anger, which I... would be something that... that oh, right, exactly. Yeah. Would you reinsert well, that? I, into that, that I also... 
<laughs> I don't know. It's very, I mean, it's a very loaded, I mean, I'm Jewish and I did have extended family that did die in the Holocaust. I find it incredibly hard to be objective about it, but I also, would I have anger or not? I, I don't know. But, but even if I, if we, if we grant what, what you just said about anger being yeah. uh, useful at a personal level to yeah. overcome adversity, that, that may be true. Well, that's certainly true empirically. Yeah. I'm not sure that it necessarily follows that it ought to be true at a moral level or ethical level. But what the Dalai Lama was talking about was a, was a different issue, right? It was, yeah. He was talking about, should I cultivate anger hatred about certain people or certain situations, yeah. like in the case of, in, uh, of Hitler, in order to build motivation. Yeah. And I think that the, the Dalai Lama answer there was no, because you should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, uh, because you have the, the power to do it, the opportunity to do it, just like the surgeon who takes out the, the, uh, the cancer. The problem with anger in that situation, as opposed to the ones you're, you're talking yeah. about, is that if I go after somebody with anger, uh, first of all, I am misunderstanding fundamentally how the universe works because I'm now blaming that person for something that he or she is actually not uh, to be blamed for. So I'm making a metaphysical mistake in a sense. But also, I'm going to act in a way that is possibly uh, disproportionate to the situation. Because the problem with anger, especially the, that kind of, you know, sort of rage that, that you can build in certain situations is that it becomes incontrollable. You know, the, the, the whole notion of controlling anger, is, it's really problematic. And so once you start getting into that direction, you're gonna hate not just Hitler, but everybody that is connected with Hitler. And then you're gonna start having a genocide, not just one person that you're gonna eliminate. And that becomes problematic. Yes. Galen, would you like to comment on this question of, you know, the sort of, <laughs> the possible further ramifications well, I mean, of such a How problem? could I possibly not be disgusted by Hitler's. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't even really like my conclusion about the impossibility of ultimate, ultimate moral responsibility. But it, I don't. It seems watertight. But you know, I don't. I don't think I can live like that. The thing about the story about the cake and the Oxfam that was about personal, being unable not to experience your own actions as free. But my father, P. F. Strawson, had a very famous paper called Freedom and Resentment. And he grounded our inability not to believe in freedom, mainly in our emotions about other people. It means you could never feel gratitude or resentment or, and this is just not human. You couldn't be human and, and not, in effect, believe, believe in something like free will. So I like yeah. the fact that there are these two different lines onto it, the first person experience and the social experience. I wanted to ask, um, in this section though, we're talking um, you know, about sort of large societal precepts and history and so on. But Mazuma, you had made an argument about distinctness, hadn't you, and individuation. And this is why we do have personal responsibility, because everyone is distinct and different, and oh, they yeah. have to... So, well, I mean, at, least yeah, but at the same time... Yeah, albeit in a sort of minor sense. But, I mean, surely, you know, we're all here as distinct, finite mortals, kind of living our own lives, following a path. Indeed. And there are these micro-decisions that we're Indeed. making. And so do we take responsibility for those small-scale decisions? Well, we, we do, de facto, but um, the case, it's, you know, it's not metaphysically cogent in the end. And I think he actually agreed at Massimo. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, and it's, we, need to we need to think of ourselves as responsible yes. as a matter of self-respect, among other things. 
Is it then a sort of one of those, like a Jungian argument, that if you, you need some theories that you maintain just because they're societally expedient and well, sort of make you feel better? That's sort of worrying because you think, oh, so it's an illusion, but it's a necessary illusion. But I don't see, quite, I don't see how to escape that in the view, uh, that in the end. And I do, of course, think it's right that courts, courts have excusing conditions. And if you can cite certain neurological conditions, um, it is, it's, it's right, although to, to give someone a lesser sentence, although ultimately they're just a piece of the puzzle of the universe. I mean, in the way sure. that Massimo sure. says. Yes. Yeah. Can I bring Sarah in? Again, you're doing this really interesting research on interoceptors. And again, that's a kind of condition in which it's, it's a, the process is different for people with autism. And, and is that quite therapeutically helpful for people with autism to feel there is something that is happening that, you know, in a way it's it's not their fault, they're not responsible in that respect. Yes. Um, so certainly autistic people can feel very um, overwhelmed by the world and be bombarded by things in a sensory way. And that can then feel very out of control for them and very scary and hard to regulate. Um, and helping individuals have better control over their bodies and connecting the sort of brain body pathways can help people regulate their own emotions, their own actions. Um, and that's certainly something that people do find helpful. Yes, yeah. Well, so I think we should move into our final area, which is really to hypothesize more stringently about the sort of society we're going to have if we all accept then that this notion of moral responsibility is kind of philosophically meaningless. Um, and so Galen, can I begin with you? What Can't be done. No, it's just we, we wouldn't be human anymore. I mean, suppose, yes, well, here's a question. Suppose there was a kind of button that if you pressed it, we would all completely lose the belief in free will. One question is, should we press it? Because you might say, well, that will be the ultimate metaphysical truth, but what would happen to human life? And of course, well, my father posed this question too in his paper, and he said, no, that would be terrible because you'd lose, and I agree. I mean, you, you know, what happens to love and everything? Uh, on the other hand, we can't know f what we will feel like on the other side of that, making, pressing that button. So we, our picture is that we'd just be these terrible zombies. Um, I don't actually know what more to say. Why, why do we have a notion of free will then, if it is so fundamentally flawed? Uh, well, I think I would say for the reason I gave in the story about the, well, the two, the way we feel our emotional feelings about other people, you know, Gratitude, gratitude is a wonderful feeling, and it actually presupposes a kind of free will and resentment too. So that, and then, and then the, the first person experience of choice is inescapable. Yeah, but I, I agree that it, that those feelings are inescapable and they're part of who we are as human beings. And I don't think it would be a good idea to try to suppress them or, or you know, do a, do away with them. Um, I'm not convinced, however that those are necessarily logically connected with, specifically with the notion of free will. Uh, they are connected with the notion that I, I think I'm making decisions, right? When I, when I yeah. uh, blame or myself, for instance, for a, or, or, or I pat myself on the back for a good decision, it, 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 that's because it's my decision. But there is no, no discussion about the fact that we are capable of making decisions. We do, all the time. That's, not, that's really not under discussion. The question is whether those decisions are free, whatever that means, or not. And um, 
the feelings will stay there. The feelings are there just because the decision is mine, therefore I feel in a certain way about my decision. But then do I really need to go on the extra step and say, yeah, but is this free in a metaphysical sense or, or not? I mean, people have debating of, debated this, 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 this issue for, in the Western tradition, at least for 23, 2400 years. Uh, and it seems like there is only two or three possibilities out there. And uh, it seems like the most common one, at, at least among philosophers uh, nowadays, is something called compatibilism, which is the notion that you can have your cake and eat it too, in a sense. Uh, that is, the universe is deterministic in the, in the bare minimum sense of we live in a place of cause and effect. There are no miracles. Your decisions are not free in the sense of being decoupled from everything else that goes on in the universe. But at the same time, they're your decisions, the position that I explained earlier. That's called compatibilism. And the compatibilism is, in fact, uh, perfectly friendly with the notion that we have certain emotions and we should have certain emotions. There is no, no problem with having those, those, those emotions. We just don't need the extra step and trying to say that those uh, decisions are ultimately free or fundamentally free or anything like that. Um, because that notion is metaphysically difficult to, to defend. In fact, I think impossible to defend. Um, and scientifically ungrounded. And so why, would, why, would, why do we need it? I'll just bring it. Yes, Sarah, would you like to respond on this? I mean, it's just, I'm just, I've never debated with philosophers before. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, part of me is just. Do Welcome really, to the club. <laughs> so, you find it? Well, really, very different. So, I mean, honestly. She's being polite. No, I just, I mean, we're talking, they're talking about metaphysics, and you know what? I study the brain and I look at consequential behavior. And of course, we have control of our Actions. What do you think is happening in their Absolutely. brains, philosophers? Um, yeah, I what's agree. Happening? I think yeah. they're on a sort of meta level of language, which sort of is uh, very abstract. No, it's hard stuff. And it's hard as it. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not. I like to look at biological substrates of things, and I just don't think it's that complicated. Yes, we have moral responsibility. Yes, we have free will. We exercise control using our prefrontal cortex. Some of us may have stronger urges due to gene environmental interactions, but unless you're completely impaired and in, in levels of sort of psychosis or other things, I, I just don't see the debate here in this sort of... <laughs> We've asked in one through the whole of philosophy. I think you won. <laughs> and we can all go. Oh, but, but wait a minute. Would one of our philosophers like to respond to this so, devastating? So when you yeah, say hey, that, so are you determined to say that? So yes, you think right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But so when you say, uh, I'm generally curious uh, yeah. as a neuroscientist. Yeah. Right. Uh, we, I think, we agree that of course we, that we do make decisions uh, yeah. and and. Oh, yeah, no, no, that was never in question. Right, that's never. Right? You make yeah. the decisions but you make because of the way you are, and you're not ultimately responsible for the way you are. Right. So, well, when, you say you free, are. Hold on, hold Sorry. when you say free. <laughs> hey, hold on. Oh, okay. okay, Sarah, can I do this? You, so, you, you were born with a certain genetic. Yeah, but if I say the genes made me do it, I am my genes or I am my brain. You can't disentangle these things. Sure, but, um, but, then, but you're not ultimately responsible for what you do because you didn't make yourself the way you are. I keep saying the same thing, but. Yeah, I mean, so you didn't, in other words, I mean, I let's, let's try something different. No, 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 I understand 
the complex sort of play on points, but yes, you are responsible. I. I oh yeah, you're responsible in the way that you know, drinks machine is responsible if you press the button for a flat white. Right. But is it, is it a bit but like, you know... The and if it doesn't give you a flat white, you, you push for a flat white and it gives you a cappuccino, then you say, oh, there is something wrong with this machine. This machine has psychosis. I need to fix it. <laughs> right? No! What do you mean, no? So, okay, let me go back to the second. Yeah. To the question, fundamental question. When you say... Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. When you say that we have... Free will. Yes. Free from what? I mean, where, where is the freedom there? I exercise control over my brain. Control who, is not in question. You? you have control. And yeah. But you, you are a thing made not ultimately by you, so... But wait a minute, who, who exercises control over your brain? <laughs> but you are responsible for your actions because you control your actions with your neural substrates. Your neural sure. substrates might be a complex um, mixture of epigenetics and other things, sure. but you are ultimately responsible for your actions because you could choose otherwise. Um, did you choose your brain? You are your brain. Right, but you didn't choose it. But you are it's not your like brain. You, you went to brainstorm and selected. <laughs> no, but you don't need to separate these things because you are intrinsically your physiology. Sure. Then any action that results from that, you are responsible for. And I think the only difference between our position is that instead of using the word responsible, yeah. because it has moral connotations here, um, we agreed that those decisions are yours. Mm -hmm. You are the one making the decision. But I don't want to go back. Unfortunately, I need to go back to the <laughs> ultimately stuff. Uh, you know, ultimately, I didn't pick my genetic machinery. That was a lottery that happened when my mother and my father had sex. That was an interesting thought. Um, <laughs> Strange thing to find yourself discussing. Yeah, I know, right? in public. Yeah. Um, I did not choose the environment in which I grew up, especially early on in my life. I mean, yes, I decided when I was, you know, in my 40s to move to New York. That was my decision. But I certainly didn't decide to grow up in Rome. I didn't decide to grow up in a certain neighborhood, in a certain environment, to have certain, being exposed to certain people. So none of that is yeah, my decision, Yeah, no, I understand right? that, but yes, and yet, that is what formed my brain. But, my brain today is what it is because but, of those things. But there's no genetic determinism and mapping that make behavior a direct consequence of that. No, we not deal a direct in, We deal in probability. So yes, you didn't choose any of that. That is just inherently who you are. But right. because there's no direct mapping of that to behavior, you are thus responsible for your actions. That doesn't help. Yeah, I mean, the but, fact that yes, there's indeterminacies and, and non-deterministic things going on, is, that, that doesn't make it yours. It just means it's coming from some other source that you're right. not in control of. Okay. <laughs> so just because the mapping is statistical... Oh, he's such a scientist. I can't... <laughs> no, no, hold on. So, okay. Let, I just want to measure at open things. Open parenthesis. I had, actually, <laughs> I had actually asked to change my introduction, but we didn't yeah. get to it. Um, yeah. Because I keep being presented as a, uh, as a philosopher, but actually I'm very young as a philosopher. Yeah. I've only been a professional philosopher for nine years. So I'm really a baby. Um, for the 20 plus years yeah. before that, I was a biologist. Did you, what did you study? Gene environment interactions. Did you? So, oh. it's, <laughs> so it's very pertinent to what we're talking about. It is, about. it is, it is. I love the way now Mesmer is leaving the sinking ship of <laughs> No, no. 
on the contrary, I'm saying that here the philosophy is actually getting it right. Right, right. And yeah. it is in agreement with the science, ultimately. Oh, uh, yeah. There is no, I mean, to my mind, there is one way to understand the world. Uh, I don't think that philosophers and scientists have, you know, they, they, they shouldn't talk to each other. They should talk to each other, and they should try to integrate their, their perceptions of, of things. As a biologist, I totally agree with you that genetic, genetic uh, effects are statistical. They're distributed over hundreds or thousands of, of genes. Absolutely, all of that is true. But nevertheless, they're there. They are, they are an important component of the causal web that creates who I am. Where does the rest come from? Well, the rest comes from the exposures to different environments that yeah, I've had, I, yeah. right? And more importantly, on what biologists call gene-environment interactions, which is this, this highly nonlinear, highly complex stuff that goes on basically constantly from the moment of conception throughout the rest of your life. So that exhausts, as far as I can tell, the causality that goes on in here. There is nothing above and beyond that inside my brain. My brain is the result of all those countless interactions that have been going on for the last 57 years. Galen, would you like to come in as the last pure philosopher? Or no, maybe you're now... No, I, no, the I only just, left pure philosopher. I, I just wanted to remember what Sarah said when I asked them both about, ultimate, about punishment being ultimately fair or just. Do you think that it can be because of personal responsibility? I think that we need to take in... Rather than just pragmatic and... Mitigating circumstances. If people have had a tragic yes. upbringing, um, yes. then... That needs to I agree we need all that in place, but do you think it can be fair and just period to, to actually punish people? I also believe in rehabilitation like you as well. Okay. But are we dealing with a sort of, because it's interesting with these language terms, you know, it's a bit like, so can we believe in, you know, truth at all if we don't believe in absolute truth? And I always think with that argument, it's a bit like saying, how many people here believe in eternal life? but how many people believe that they're alive at this moment? I mean, do we have to, you know, can we only believe in things that we can hold an absolute position on, or can we have a sort of sure. relative, you know, accepting position yeah. that actually, you know, within this sort of partial, finite framework, I we think can so. do these things? Yeah. Truth. Do you, do you truth. agree? Truth. So, <laughs> Did you say I don't, first of all, truth. Truth. you're talking about yeah. truth, right? Oh, truth, so, that's what you said, truth. Yeah, no, no, not truth. <laughs> no, never in the middle of a debate. I mean, come on. Um, otherwise, where the entertainment goes. Um, no, so the, I don't believe in absolute truths, uh, I think. I don't think that human beings can arrive necessarily at absolute truths. Two plus but, two equals four. Huh? Two plus two equals four. Sure, maybe. Unless, <laughs> unless, unless my brain doesn't work very well, and I think that it's true, that it's well, That's you, it's, it's not. Exactly. That's not the truth. The but truth. how do we know, right? Um, oh, so, I know. So here's the question. <laughs> I don't, Maybe in trivial cases like that. Okay. But in anything that is really complex, like the stuff that we're talking about, I think that anybody who says, you know, there's a capital T truth out there, yeah, there probably is out there. The question is, do we have a handle of it? And I would like to suggest that um, we actually know a lot less, we have a, less, a lot fewer truths than in, our, in our storage than, than we think. If you go back to the basic definition philosophy of truth, which goes back to Plato, justified through belief, knowledge is justified through belief. Right? Well, if I think that I know something, let's say, I don't know, that electrons are subatomic particles, uh, do I believe that? Yes. Um, 
Is it true? Well, then you start having, you start have to ask uh, you know physicists about it because I don't know what experiments they did. Is it justified? Well, again, you need to ask the physicist because I am telling you that I know I think I know that something like that is true. But in fact, if you ask me my justification, I will have to say go ask uh, Sabine Hassenfelder, for instance, because she she really knows. From that perspective, we actually have far less knowledge in general than we tend to agree because I, I'm pretty sure that if I, we start asking ourselves, so do I really know that the Earth is round, right? We, we all know that, right, don't we? Yeah, but if I start asking well, how to justify that, why, why, why is that true, then people start thinking, I don't know, I, mean, I read it in a book. So we don't, we don't I don't know, the, the notion of truth and, and knowledge are, 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 are not very useful in this particular case, I think. All that remains for me to do is to say thank you very much to you all for coming. And thank you so much for our panel, Galen, Sarah, Matthew. Thank Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.